Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, and welcome to the BPI Blind Pride International Making Gay History Talking About HIV AIDS Epidemic uh, session with Eric Marcus the founder and uh, guru behind uh, all of the Making Gay History podcast and, and now in its current season is a uh, personal diary. He'll talk a little bit more about that in the program. I just want to reiterate that there may be some mature themes spoken about today. HIV AIDS epidemic is not something that uh, can be discussed in a light terms. So if you are sensitive to such subjects, um, please feel free to, to pick another, um, another one of our fabulous sessions to go to. Um, I would like to uh, welcome and introduce Eric Marcus of Making Gay History. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Uh, we've, worked with, uh, we've worked with you a few times before, and we are so very, very um, you know, thankful and um, happy that you, you, know, you choose us. Uh, our flagship podcast is Pride Connection. You've been there as well. Um, and this year, we're celebrating 21 years as, you know, incorporated affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. And I think that alone, um, you know, has a small annal in the history of gay history. Uh, we are still, to this day, the only um, 5013C nonprofit that that serves the intersectionality of the blind, low vision community and the LGBTQ plus community. So I just want to say a quick, you know, round of applause for the American Council of the Blind and all of the members of BPI past and present. Um, Eric, where were you in, in your journey 21 years ago? Oh, I was already, I was already in middle age. Um, I was 41 um, 21 years ago. And where was it? What, that would have been, uh, this is 2020, the year 2000. So I was working on the second edition of the Making Gay History book. Uh, the first edition was published in 1992. And then in the late 1990s, I went back to work um, on the book to do a new edition, adding 10 years. And uh, I should say that the book was about, it was an oral history of what was then called the gay lesbian civil rights movement. Um, so I went out and did another, the first book had 49 interviews all of which I recorded using broadcast quality equipment, which is how we were able to mine that archive for the podcast. And then 10 years later, I did another, maybe another dozen interviews, um, most famously with Ellen DeGeneres and uh, Vice President Al Gore. Um, uh, so that was, no, no, did I interview him? I interviewed him in 2001, in November of 2001, um, but Ellen DeGeneres in, in, in 2020. So that's where I was. Um, and in some ways, um, not sure of what I was going to do next, which I think is why I went back and I r revised my, my book. But 21 years ago is a long time ago. And I was then in my previous long-term relationship um, and two years away from splitting up and going back to New York. So I was living in San Francisco at the time. Nope, I have actually got that all wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the problems. This is one of the problems with memory, and I'm just discovering this because um, I, in this season of the podcast, I'm, I'm doing it as an audio memoir of the first eight years of the AIDS crisis, which goes back even farther to the early '80s. And I've really struggled with with my memory and trying to get the timeline correct. No, I was in 2000. I was living in New York City, 
uh, I had been with uh, my current partner by then for uh, six years. Uh, we've now been together for 27 years. Um, and I was nice. living in Chelsea, Manhattan on West 20th Street between 8th and 9th, which is exactly where we still live. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing, too. So yeah. you have a presentation for us, a small presentation, and then we're going to get Dude. into uh, some talking points. But I definitely wanted to ask you before we started, do you remember the first time you heard the gay cancer? You ask a very good question, because that is how we begin the first episode of the current season. Um, and there are two <laughs> episodes up, one going up uh, next Thursday, the third in the series. And I have told the story for years now that I was living with my best friend from college, Doug uh, O'Quin, uh, on 44th Street and 9th Avenue in, in uh, Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan for the summer. We had rented an apartment and we were trying to get away from our mothers. We had just graduated. We were out of college for a year at that point and had moved home because we ran out of money. So we rented an apartment for just the summer. And that first article published in the New York Times about uh, what came to be known as AIDS with a headline that read, uh, rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals was published on July 3rd, 1981. And the story I've told over and over again is that, that I remember reading that and getting a chill up my spine and uh, uh, but then thinking well this isn't about me because it talked about these 41 homosexuals who were super sexually active um, the article said that they'd had uh, on average uh, 10 partners a night four days a week which is a lot of partners per week um, and while I was pretty sexually active at that age I that was way 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 above anything that I experienced um, and I turned the page and it didn't uh, really have an effect on me. But I'm not sure I actually read the article that day. Uh, I interviewed my friend Doug about, uh, about that um, to see if he remembered. And he didn't remember. So one of the challenges with memory and remember putting, putting yourself back in time is trying to remember what you knew at the time so that it's not infused with all of the memories that came after. Yeah. So I can't peel back. I can't peel back enough to know. But I do know that it didn't affect me. Um, I think I dismissed it as other people, of course, had no idea where this was going. But I do remember the first time I really paid attention. Um, and, and this is also from the, uh, from the you, you'll hear this in the podcast. My mother uh, met another Jewish mother at Esalen Institute in California in 1981. And they both had gay sons. They're both Jewish. And my mother was so not a Jewish mother, but in this case, she was because these two mothers set up their two gay sons. And <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, and, and, you, know, you never know with a blind date because mothers have terrible judgment about their own children. But um, Bob and I went on a couple of dates. And in those days, um, there was, I don't think, we didn't think twice about a date going from dinner to the bedroom. Um, and we had a couple of dates, but we were very different. He was uh, what I would describe as the Chelsea clone. In those days, that was a certain type of gay guy. Uh, uh, I mean, now it's, uh, it's perfectly common for gay men to go to gyms and, and build themselves up. But in those days, it was, it was this, this new version of the sort of hyper-masculine gay guy. So even though he was shorter than I am, and, um, uh, uh, and not a big guy, he was muscly and he had a tattoo, which... Uh, Jews are not supposed to have. So I had never seen a Jew with a tattoo. In fact, I'd never, except for people who, in my neighborhood where I grew up who had tattoos from, from being in concentration camps. Um, but Chelsea clones had tattoos 
and they wore uh, 501 jeans, really tight, um, yeah. work boots and uh, shirts that showed off, uh, you know, a, a, like a Lacoste shirt, a polo shirt that would show off their bodies. He was wearing a white T-shirt, tight white T-shirt the night we met. Um, but we were so ill-suited. I was a, a sort of a proto, as one of my friends called me, a neo-preppy. Um, I'd gone to Vassar College and I wore uh, khakis and, and loafers and, and button-down shirts. So we were not terribly well-suited and he was, he was 27 or 28 and really comfortable being gay and being out. I was 22 and not so comfortable, um, although I was out, mostly out, um, and had a couple of dates and that was the end of it. Uh, and a few months later in 1982, probably February or March, my mother called and she said, have you talked to Bob lately? And I said, no. And she didn't know the nature of the relationship that we had. She never asked, uh, asked me. Um, and I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, he's in the hospital. I said, what's wrong? And she said, he has that new gay disease. Oh. And I almost fainted. So that was the first time I really took notice. But it had been months. I had no symptoms. And in those days, we didn't yet know that there was an incredible, could be an incredibly long incubation period for uh, AIDS. Yeah. Um, up to 10, 15, or even 20 years. Um, so I was relieved. Um, there was a complication. Um, as I, uh, 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 there was a complication because between the time I um, had those dates with Bob when we had very unsafe sex and when my mother called me, I had been seduced by friends of my mother and um, a straight couple and uh, I didn't know what to do. Should I tell them? that I had been exposed to HIV, should I not? Um, and I decided not to because I wasn't sick. And I thought if I get sick, I'll have to tell them. Um, but I was out of my mind with worry and I didn't get tested. And I can explain why later if you wanna ask, I didn't get tested until 1988. Now there was no test until 1985. Fine, um, yeah. But I didn't get tested until 88. My then partner and I went to get tested then. So I, I, I can, can't begin to tell you how relieved I was when I got my test results and I was negative because it didn't just involve me. Um, I had put other people uh, at risk and that was the worst. Worrying that I might have, um, I might die. I might have killed uh, friends. Um, oh, it was just, a, it was a terrible time. Terrible. So that's a very long Before answer we Short question. No, that's no. Actually, it gives a perspective that you know the, the audience that we're we're catering to today is is um a a wide range of the blind and low vision, their allies, sighted people. So we don't really know who's out there um listening. So this gives a a very personal stamp on what it was like to to possibly wonder and live with that for for you know eighty one to eighty five. That's for you you know, and then you yourself didn't go till eighty eight to wonder and to have that lingering over you. Did I inadvertently give this to someone? Did I yeah. you know that's really powerful. Well, and that brings me I want to go back to that statistic from the article. Um, and and I, I very loosely, I'm doing air quotes as I say that, use, you know, use the word statistic. You know, do you actually think that those men, um, all of them fell into that category? Or do you think that was sensationalizing, 
you know, maybe one or two of them had given a, a lifestyle example and they just blew it up to, you know, propagate fear. No, I believe that was the, the, the statistic. The first people who got sick were the gay men who were the most sexually active. So there wasn't that much virus out there then. So, uh, so the odds of getting it were pretty slim, unless you were having huge numbers of partners, uh, yeah. which some people were. So um, if you went to the, the baths in those days, the gay bathhouses, there were people who could have, I, I can't imagine it, you know, 10 partners in an evening, um, four nights a week. <laughs> I joke, you had to be pretty young to be able to do that. Um, and I was, I was, I couldn't imagine going to a bathhouse. I was so fearful. Um, and I was germ phobic besides. So uh, while I was sexually active, I did not move in that uh, or didn't travel in that, that fast lane. Um, but remember, this was such a different time. This was a time of sexual liberation, not just for gay people, but from the 60s, the, the 1960s on, it was for straight people as well. Um, uh, and Stonewall was only in 1969. So during the 1970s, um, uh, 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 gay men, urban gay men in particular, um, were free to uh, live their lives in ways that they wanted. And sexual expression was one of the key, obviously one of the key aspects. And, um, and bathhouses, uh, there were more uh, bathhouses that were opened and bars with back rooms. And there were a lot of people having a lot of sex. Um, and you throw a virus into that yeah. It's like if you think about the super spreader events during COVID, you know, and the yeah. fact that with COVID, which also had um, a longish incubation period, um, I shouldn't say incubation period, um, there were people who were asymptomatic, just as there were people who were initially pre-symptomatic with AIDS, so that you could pass COVID on to people without even knowing you were ill. You could pass HIV on to lots and lots and lots of partners um, and not know that you were ill, and they'd can then be infected and spread HIV far and wide and not get sick for years themselves. It was, it is such an insidious virus in that regard, in that you can un unknowingly, and certainly then we knew nothing, you could unknowingly, unknowingly infect lots of other partners. So what did you bring for us today slide-wise, and then we'll continue our conversation. Great. So what I'm going to share with you is um, just three stories from the Making Gay History archive. Um, and I'll tell you about each of them. The, the archive comes from the two editions of the Making Gay History book, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I recorded most of the interviews uh, in 19, uh, between 1988 and 1990, and then a relative handful of interviews in 1999, 2000, uh, to 2021. Uh, and I recorded all those interviews using broadcast quality equipment because I thought that one day they would have some value to somebody. Um, I didn't expect to mine my own archive. And in 2008, I turned over the collection of more than 100 interviews, more than 300 hours of interviews to the New York Public Library with an agreement that they digitized the whole collection because I had cassette tapes. And those cassette tapes lived in a stack of uh, trays, uh, tape trays, about six feet high. Um, and I kept a second set, a backup set, because I'm a crazy person and I worried that if something happened to the original that I would lose that interview. And also many of the people I interviewed uh, died from old age and then plenty of them died of AIDS. I set out to do these interviews when I was commissioned to write this book in 1988. 
And when I started work on the book, I made a list of the very old people I wanted to interview and the gay men who I knew had uh, AIDS and didn't have long to live. Because in those days, when you were diagnosed with HIV, uh, your life expectancy was between nine months and two years. Sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, but, but it was a virtual death sentence. There were people I interviewed who I knew had HIV and there were people I interviewed who I thought might. Um, so I'm gonna share with you two stories of people who were already ill and one story with someone who I thought might be. And out of this uh, archive, I should tell you, so I didn't expect to mine my, my own archive and I uh, had an opportunity in 2015 uh, when I'd been fired from a job and was trying to figure out what to do next, I had an opportunity with the help of a grant from the Arcus Foundation to go back into my archive and uh, initially to develop an educational project which morphed into the Making Gay History podcast. We've now produced, uh, we're in the middle of producing the ninth season of the podcast. We've produced more than 90 episodes. Uh, we've had 4 million episode downloads in 200 countries and territories in the, uh, around the world. We launched in, the f in October of 2016. So that's where we are with the, with the podcast. And these clips that I'm gonna share with you are drawn from uh, the podcast. And, um, and I'll describe what's on the screen for those who are unable to see um, or see clearly. So I'm now sharing my screen and um, here we are. So um, what's on the screen now is the Making Gay History logo. Uh, it says Making Gay History and then underneath the podcast and Making Gay is in black type, the podcast is in black, black type, and the word history is in rainbow colors. And this comes straight off the jacket of the Making Gay History book. Um, we decided to keep it simple. The first piece that I'm gonna share with you is a clip from someone I'm guessing no one has ever heard of. His name is Tom Cassidy. And uh, on this slide, I have a photo of Tom Cassidy sitting at an anchor desk at CNN. In the background, you see the CNN logo um, and a television under, television monitor underneath the CNN logo. And uh, also in the background, it says New York. So Tom Cassidy was based in New York. He was a business anchor. He's seated at the anchor desk wearing um, a sport coat. He's got a handkerchief in his, in his sport coat, uh, wearing a button down shirt, which I'm guessing was probably blue. The color of the photo is in black and white. And he's wearing a tie with a geometric pattern, a very tight pattern. Tom is, has one of those incredibly rugged faces with a sharp jawline and a prominent uh, chin. Um, he has a closed, closed mouth smile, very high forehead. Um, he has straight hair combed in a part from the, his left side. Um, and he's looking directly uh, at the camera with this slight smile, closed mouth smile. And he's leaning on the, on the anchor desk uh, with, his, with his elbow. And he is very, very, very handsome. So Tom played, the reason I interviewed Tom was it was suggested by, by one of my mentors who was the Dean of Admissions at, at, uh, uh, at Bowdoin College when Tom Cassidy applied to go there. He was a high school football player and um, he got an interview with uh, Dick Mull, the, the, the uh, Dean of Admissions. His grades weren't good enough and Dick told him to go back and uh, and up his grades for his senior year, do better. And was ultimately admitted to uh, Bowdoin College where he played football. Tom always wanted to be a journalist, wanted to be a TV journalist um, and had great success at CNN, um, joined uh, in the earliest days of CNN and uh, had a show that he hosted called uh, The Pinnacle where he interviewed uh, leaders in business all over the world. And then in 1987, during, uh, on the day of the crash of the stock market, Tom found out he was HIV positive. 
Now, in those days, there was no such thing as an openly gay person uh, who, who was a newsreader or a, a journalist on television who was out. No such thing on national news. Um, Tom assumed that if anyone knew he was gay, he would be fired. And certainly if they knew he was gay and HIV positive, that he would be fired. So uh, just to give you some context, I worked at CBS News, CBS Morning News in 1988. I was on the production side, um, the editorial side, and I was the only out gay producer at CBS Morning News in 1988. Um, uh, and CBS News, <clears throat> excuse me, CBS News had nobody on, uh, on camera who was, who was uh, openly gay. And I was told that they would never put someone on camera who was openly gay because I asked, because that's the job I wanted. So, um, so I went to interview Tom. Uh, this was just after uh, he'd been hospitalized and uh, his boss asked him what was going on because Tom by then was visibly ill. So I went to Tom's office at CNN. And so you'll hear background sound um, of his office uh, while I'm interviewing him. And this story, this story picks up and this is only a three minute clip or two and a half minute clip picks up where uh, he's come back to the office and I ask him, uh, this is after he's been hospitalized, and asked him uh, what was going on. Here's Tom Cassidy. When did they find out here at the office? When I came back to work, my boss, Lou Dobbs, asked me to come into his office and he said, how are you doing? And I said, uh, I was trying to put the best foot forward and say, great, great. And he said, how sick were you? With the beads of sweat on your forehead at that point? Yeah, and I said, well, I was pretty sick. <laughs> and he said, well, how sick? I said, I was very sick. And he said, how sick? And I said, well, I have AIDS. I mean, his eyes just sort of rolled back. It was very much a feeling of relief for me it, because Lou Dobbs is clearly one of the most important people in my life. Almost clearly a brother figure. He's a Western cowboy, a macho homophobe uh, who was really a very good friend of mine. And I was afraid of what his reaction would be. Because of the or because of being gay? Both. He totally surprised me. I mean, I did not have any negative reaction from him. He said, what do you want me to do? He said, do you want me to tell anybody? Do you want me not to tell anybody? And I said, I think you better tell everyone. Why at that point? I was tired. I was tired of living a lie. So after the interview with Tom, I um, went by cab with Tom for his chemotherapy treatment. Um, actually, I went with him to Fifth Avenue uh, where he was having the chemotherapy treatment, said goodbye to him on the sidewalk and then watched him walk downtown um, just a couple of blocks to where his doctor's office was. And Tom was a really physically powerful guy, but he was really unsteady on his feet uh, walking down Fifth Avenue. This was in October of 1990. He died the following May um, and he was 41 years old. Wow. Yeah. Anthony, any questions before I move on to the next line? I don't, I don't know how politically correct it is to ask, but when, oh, when you were sitting there, you, you said you could see he was visibly sick. Yeah. What, what signs did you, you know, a lot of people remember the, um, 
the rashes and the um I forget what they're called now, but um Kaposi sarcoma, the the thank the, you. the lesions, yes. The lesions. Uh, a, yeah, it was a rare cancer, but it was uh it, it was it was common among among people who had HIV because it was the kind of cancer, well, it was common among people, it's kind of complicated. Um, uh, but it, it usually only showed up in people who were severely immune compromised. The, the, the confusing piece about AIDS in the early days was that they didn't understand why people were getting all of these illnesses. Um, and some of them really bizarre, like cat scratch fever, which didn't usually kill you, but it killed you if you had no immune system, is what yeah. the virus that caused AIDS, HIV, did is it destroyed your immune system. So it left you open to all kinds of infections. Um, I could tell Tom wasn't well because he was very thin. Um, and because he was such a big bone guy and his face, he has this really bony face, which is this amazing face. But when you don't have enough meat on your bones, when you're that bony looking, um, you look a little scary. He was a little, he was skeletal. Um, uh, so that's how I could tell he wasn't well. And then also the way he walked, um, you could tell he wasn't well. And he'd been, he almost died in the hospital on that, 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 uh, that hospital stay. So how long, of, how long was he on air after that? I don't know how long he was on the air after that. Um, that's a really good question. And I don't know. I do know that he was asked by the local CBS affiliate if he would, um, uh, allow them to do a multi-part series on him uh, about living with AIDS. And he agreed to do it. Um, and he said wow. he agreed to do it because he wanted to put a, a face on AIDS that some of the people you knew who you saw on television every day um, were gay and had AIDS, you know, so that he, he wanted to use what time he had left to try to educate people. Well, so I don't know. Really yeah, 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 yeah. At, at CNN, CNN headquarters, there are posters of all of their famous anchors, and um, he's not there. And I asked one of my friends who now no longer works at CNN, but uh, he tried to get them to do something about Tom, but they did not. And I, it makes wow. me wonder why. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a lovely guy. So the, the next clip I'm going to share with you is uh, from a guy named Morty Manford. This is not where he's talking about having AIDS. So Morty was an accidental interview. I'll tell you what's on screen right now. Um, there's a, it's a photograph, a color photograph of Morty, but a faded color photograph of it washed out because it's an old photo. It's from around when he was probably 18 years old, maybe 20 years old. Um, and he has um, this, uh, he has all this, this bushy hair. He has a full head of hair, bushy hair. He's wearing a blue t-shirt. Um, and he's a kid standing in front of a pegboard that has pots and pans and other kitchen utensils. I'm guessing that it's in, in his mother's house in Flushing. And the reason I wound up interviewing Morty is that I went to interview Gene Manford, who is uh, a co-founder of PFLAG. She co-founded PFLAG in 1972. And she was famous for marching in the 1972 Pride March in New York City and carrying a sign that said, Parents Unite, colon, in support, uh, in support of our gay children. And she was the first parent to do, to march in the march and make clear that she was the parent of a gay child. Um, she had previously written a letter to the New York Post, which was then a liberal newspaper, um, complaining that her son had been beaten up at a protest and that the person who beat him up, who was the head of the firemen's union in New York City, 
wasn't arrested. And her son was so badly beaten, he was put in the hospital. Um, a little bit of backstory on Jean. I didn't know that her first son had killed himself. And she was determined that nobody was going to take her second, her second child. Um, and she was an elementary school teacher from Flushing, Queens, very shy, um, a tiny person. And she was fierce when it came to Morty. So I went, went to interview Jean and Morty was living at home. Um, and Jean was a widower by then. And he joined us at the, during the interview. And I didn't know who he was, but it turns out that Morty Manford, at that, when I, interviewed, when I met him, he was 39 and he was an assistant attorney, uh, attorney general for the state attorney general in New York. Um, he had been president of the Gay Activist Alliance in the early 1970s, uh, became an activist after, um, and he was actually at Stonewall, in fact, uh, during the riot, um, and became inv actively involved a little later in the, uh, uh, in the gay civil rights movement and what was called the gay liberation phase of the movement. So I wound up interviewing Morty and Jean uh, at their kitchen table, and then went back and did a separate interview with Morty. Um, and it was during that interview that I was trying to find out from Morty, because I thought he might be ill, um, trying to find out if he had AIDS. And um, we, he drove me back to the train station after the interview, and I, I, and I hadn't asked him yet. And we're sitting in the car, and the tape is rolling, and I said, um, I tried to ask every which way without asking directly and raise the subject of AIDS. And I had completely forgotten this part of the interview because it's not in the book. Um, and my producer was listening to Morty's tape when she was pre preparing an episode on him. And she said, oh my goodness, that section at the end when you're in the car is so powerful. And I said, why? She said, because of all the silences, because it, you were trying to ask him questions about his own, uh, his own status and, and uh, he wasn't answering, but you could. So what ha happened was I, I asked him a question about, about AIDS and uh, talked about how people were so affected and we'd all lost friends. And, and he said something about losing friends and his eyes filled with tears. And you can't translate those si silences into print. So I didn't even transcribe that scene um, when I did the original transcriptions. So, but it works in a podcast when you're doing audio. So you hear that sequence in the, in the episode we did with him in the podcast. Um, it turned out Morty did have AIDS and I found out years later from his sister that he had just learned two weeks prior that he was HIV positive. Morty died before the book was published. Um, I, I stayed in touch with his mother and uh, in in April of 1970, I'm sorry, April of 1992, um, Jean and I spoke by phone and she said that Morty was really ill and, and that he was very concerned that no one would ever remember the contributions he made to the movement. And I said, Jean, would you like me to send you the, what were then the bound galleys, the pre-publication version of the book, so that Morty can read his section of the book to see that he's not forgotten. Um, that his activism and his contributions weren't forgotten. She said, he can't read anymore. He's too ill. I said, well, I'll send it to you and you can read it to him, which is what I did. So this clip, and he died, um, he died uh, in, I think in May of 1992, just a month before the book was published. So wow. this clip is from a story early in Morty's activism uh, when he went to a protest outside New York University in New York City protesting um, a speech that the mayor, the then mayor, Mayor Lindsay, was giving, um, who was running for president, uh, 
it was a, a quickly organized protest um, against the New York Police Department uh, because the police were beating up gay people in the village. This is in 1971. And it was, I believe, September 21st, 1971. And Morty was, it was his birthday. He just turned 21. Uh, and I think September 21st is Constitution Day. And there was no getting into this event. They were protesting outside. But Morty somehow found his way in. So this is a clip from Morty Manford describing that particular protest. And you'll hear in his voice and in mine, he can't believe what he did when he was a young person. Somehow or another, I got inside. I, I mean, All by yourself. I mean, you're, you were yeah. the only one to get in. Yeah. What, maybe a thousand people sitting in the audience and, and the mayor was up at the podium talking. Well, there I was. What was I going to do? It was just me. So naturally, I did what anyone else would do. I walked onto the stage and I took the podium away from John Lindsay. <laughs> I walked up right next to him and I uh, said, uh, so the audience could hear, the police are brutalizing gay people three blocks away from where we're sitting. Oh, the, and, and the, the police... Um, Harassment and, and attacks were even going on that night. That was one of the points that I made. I wasn't there very long, but what I said made an impression. The police dragged me off the back of the stage and they ejected me through, you know, some, some or another uh, exit. Apparently, after I left, the audience called the mayor to account for what was going on with the police bothering the gay community. And um, apparently John Lindsay had made a statement that uh, he would permit me to speak if, if I wanted. Of course, he knew darn well the police had already thrown me out, didn't realize that I would come back. And I, I, I snuck back in. I mean, I broke through the security lines again. I, I can't tell you how I did it, but I got back in. And I came right down that aisle. And I could see him looking up from the podium at me, you know, biting his lip and saying, oh, shit, here he comes again. And I walked right back up on stage and I said to him, I understand you said I can speak. <laughs> and he said yes, and he yielded the podium to me. And I uh, addressed the audience about the police brutality and, and the harassment we were facing. And I said my piece. I thanked them, and I left as surreptitiously as I'd entered. I just love this story about Morty. He was um, he was fierce, and as I said, you could tell yeah. in his voice he couldn't believe what, as an adult, what he did when he was a twenty-one-year-old kid. Um, so, um, in June of ninety-two, after Morty had died, I was living in San Francisco then with my my first partner, and the fax machine went off early in the morning. Um, and for those of you who don't remember fax machines, we never had one. The paper slowly scrolls, so you, you don't see immediately the whole thing that's come in. It's, it's almost line by line. And it was the New York Times, and it was uh, uh, from the opinion page, and it was uh, 
a piece by Anna Quinlan, who was then a famous columnist. And it was a column about Jean Manford and her son Morty and the Making Gay History book. And I only wish that Morty had lived long enough to see that. Um, Anna was writing about um, uh, Jean who just lost her son and about the life he had lived. Um, so not long after that, there was a, we, ha we had a big event at the New York uh, Gay and Lesbian Community Center, now the LGBTQ Center, um, for the book. And my mom and I read Jean and Morty, a section from Jean and Morty's interview. There were 300 people in the audience. It was a packed house. And I had invited Jean. <clears throat> and Morty had only died a few weeks before. But I didn't tell anyone Jean was there. Um, until after my mother and I had finished reading a section between Jean and Morty. Uh, yeah, between Jean and Morty. <clears throat> and then I said, we're very fortunate. And I explained that, that, that Morty had just died. And I said, how fortunate we were that Jean was in the audience. I said, Jean, can you just please stand? You cannot imagine the reaction <clears throat> that Jean got. Yeah. Wild cheers. And people wouldn't stop until she got up and came to the podium. And she, all she could say was, she said, thank you so much. I can't say anything more. And she went back to her seat and people just cheered and cheered. And I cried and my mother cried and everybody was in tears. Um, she was remarkable. Um, so, so was Morty. Yeah. And he just, you know, one of so many in New York city alone, a hundred thousand people died of AIDS and most of them were gay men. Um, I remember my first gay pride parade was 1996 um, and I, I wasn't fully out. I, you know, I had had one set of friends from, you know, from college and, and one set of friends that I would go out with in Manhattan. Uh -huh. And um, she was at an event. It wasn't the parade itself. It was one of those lead up events. And um, the reaction was just, you know, and, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, this, this woman made history, you know, yeah. and she made it, she made it okay for me to be here. I'm eventually going to come out. And I, I have to say, you know, if, if not for your work, a lot of these stories would never have been told. Yeah. Many of them would by other people, but a lot of them would have been lost to history completely, if not for what you've done. Yeah, I feel so lucky that I had the privilege of, of interviewing these people um, and recording their stories. And it turns out some of them are very rare interviews, especially with the earliest activists and founders of our movement in the, in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, I, it was, I was lucky. I was commissioned to write this book. I didn't come up with the idea. Um, but I will take credit my, for my 30-year-old self for having thought to ask my boss at CBS News um, what equipment his colleagues used at, at uh, National Public Radio, where he had worked previously and created Morning Edition and Weekend Edition. I asked him if he could recommend the equipment that his uh, colleagues used. And that's why I went out and bought the best equipment uh, that I, uh, that I knew, uh, was available so I could record these interviews so that, that, um, so that one day I could make a, po a podcast from my own recordings. Um, uh, because if it's bad tape, you can't use it. There's so many people who've recorded interviews and, and you can barely hear the sound. Um, yeah. You still hear that train roar over, you know, in tiny little di tinnish dialogue. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I have one more, one more story to share. Um, okay. This is Vito Russo, and what you're seeing on the screen is uh, Vito Russo, his name, and then this picture of a, an angelic-looking young man with eyes that are so brown they're almost black. He has short, uh, uh, short, very short brown hair, uh, combed slightly over the top of his forehead. 
He's freckled-faced, um, has a slight, almost smile, but only slight, just lips, lips slightly parted. His hands are clasped uh, in front of him. Um, his chin is against the clasped hand, so you don't see his chin. He's wearing a signet ring of some kind on his pinky. Um, and he's wearing a bracelet. You can just see the edge of it. And also a gold necklace. Um, and he's wearing, it's not quite a t-shirt. It's a ribbed shirt of some kind with a slightly scalloped collar. And he is, you just say he was adorable, just adorable. Um, and looking at the camera directly, he couldn't have been more than 20. Now, when I met Vito Russo, he didn't look like this. Um, uh, he was a heavy smoker. He was in his 40s by then. Um, he had a mustache. And I'd never seen a picture of Morty as a young person. And I just, it was, it's captivating. So my first, the first time I crossed paths with Morty Manfred, I'm sorry, with Vito Russo, was in an office at a publisher called Harper and Row, now Harper Collins, on Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street, where I was a temp in 1981. I was making $3.25 an hour. I worked for a woman named Khadija Mantin, the first uh, uh, Muslim person I'd ever met. And uh, I was assigned to the special sales department to open envelopes that had order forms and checks. And my job after four years of Vassar College was to separate what was the contents of those envelopes. The order forms went in one pile, the checks went in another, and then the uh, paper clips and staples went in a third pile. Um, but while I worked for, at, at Harper and Row, I met an editor um, whose name escapes me. And we often chatted. Uh, and in his office, I noticed on the shelf, there was a book with a silver jacket called The Celluloid Closet. It had just been published. It was by wow. an author named Vito Russo, yeah. who was a film historian. And the book was about, and I saw the word homosexuality on the cover. So that interested me immediately. Um, and I was, I was 21. And, and uh, the book was about how Hollywood's portrayal of homosexuals shaped public perceptions about gay people and not in a good uh -huh. way. Um, and during lunch hours, I, when, when nobody else was around, because I, while I was out, I wasn't out. Um, uh, I know that sounds contradictory, but I was out to my friends and some of my family, but I, I, I was still not quite so comfortable being, being public about who I was. So during lunch hours, I would, would sneak into to the editor's office and read Vito's book. So it was just seven years later that I wound up being, uh, selling a book to Harper and Row, The Male Couple's Guide, my first book. And then an editor at Harper and Row, uh, who I was friendly with, uh, read the male couple's guide, liked how it did dialogue, and then commissioned me to write uh, what was originally called Making History, later Making Gay History. So I came across Vito Russo first in that uh, in his book, um, and then I knew about him. He was on my radar because he uh, was a co-founder of GLAD, which was originally called the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, and he was also um, uh, the co a co-founder of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. He was yeah. a, a very important voice uh, during the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, um, a very public figure um, when he was well enough to do so. So Vito was, was at the top of my list uh, to interview. He was the second person I interviewed for the book. And he was already not well. His uh, boyfriend, Jeffrey, had died three years prior. And I went to Vito's apartment 
and uh, sat with him in his office, which was this narrow room. Must have been, the ceiling must have been 10 or 12 feet high with shelves up to the ceiling with books and um, film canisters. Uh, Vito also had a, um, a television show in the 80s called Our Time, which you can find on YouTube, uh, which we pulled a clip from for one of our episodes for the, uh, for the podcast uh, for the current season. So he was somebody who collected film, he shot film. Um, and I remember sitting in his office and he, he was not well and he was smoking like a chimney. And I thought, how am I ever going to get through this interview? Because the room was just filled with smoke. Um, but Vito at that point was very, very aware of his mortality. And during a portion of the interview, we talked about legacy and what we leave behind. Um, and so that's what I'm going to play for you now. I find it interesting from what I know about the, uh, the history of the gay movement that there always have been and there will always be people who are willing to put their lives on the line for these ideas. Starting from Germany in the turn of the century in 1895 around and then into the early teens and 20s, there were a group of people in Germany headed by Magnus Hirschfeld who were willing to put their lives on the line. They were willing to make a movie called Different from the Others, which the Nazis seized and burned. That in the 1940s and the 1950s, there were the Harry Hayes and the Barbara Giddings and the Mattachine Society. And then in the 60s, gay liberation. It's, it's the more radical issues that I think are still going to be fought over. Whether gay people have a right to adopt children, get married, get married, teach in the public schools, which they do now, you know but be open about it. Right. And those battles are battles that are going to be fought long after you and I are gone. But you have to make a contribution while you're here. I mean, that's been my whole life, is to leave my book behind. That I know after I'm dead, that book is going to be on a shelf someplace, and what I have to say will reach people. And the things I've written, you know, because it's like, what's it, who was the person who said that? Pedro Almodovar. He said, the thing is, is you can't regret your life, otherwise why did you live? What was the point of having a life if you didn't say something or do something that was going to survive after you're gone? Mm -hmm. And that's the way I feel about it. I mean, I really feel the reason why I'm here is so that I could leave this book and these articles so that some 16-year-old kid who's going to be a gay activist in the next 10 or 15 years is going to read them and take, carry the ball from there. And that'll happen. Happened with me. Mm -hmm. Harry Hay passed the ball to the Mattachine, and they passed the ball to us. And you'll pass it on. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was thinking at the time I spoke with Vito that, that he was passing the ball to me, um, because I'm not that much younger than Vito, although I was, I was 14 years younger at the time. Um, but I have come to think of it that way, that I had the chance to interview him and record his story, and to now pass his story on through the podcast to others. And not long after uh, the episode with Vito uh, was released, I heard from a 15-year-old lesbian in Russia, a disabled kid, um, who was so inspired by Vito's story that she wanted to translate the transcript of his interview and share it on her blog so that other young LGBTQ people who couldn't speak English could follow along with his interview. And wow. she's had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of downloads. I just heard from her again the other day. She's now uh, in college. Uh, really impressive. And this has happened. You know, people all over the world have listened to this, this interview with Vito, and I hope they are inspired by, uh, by what he did. 
Um, Vito died on November 7th, 1990. He was 44 years old. Um, yeah, it just makes me think about all the different people who, um, who were lost at such a young, young age, yet made enormous contributions during the time, time that they were alive. So those are the, those are the three um, pieces I will share with you, I'm sh that I sh <laughs> plan to share with you today. And Anthony, I realized I neglected to describe the space in which I'm sitting, which I should have done. May I do that? <laughs> yes, you may. Thank you so, so much for remembering. <laughs> well, if I, if I were better, I would have remembered from the beginning. So um, I'm in, we have a, a small cottage in upstate New York, two and a half hours north of New York City. And I'm sitting in the oldest room in the house, which was probably built in the 18th century by a huntsman. Um, over my head, there are, you can see wood beams uh, in the ceiling. There are one, two, three, four, five of them. They're hand hewn. So the trees, they chop them down with, chop the trees down with, with hatchets and shaped the, the beams with hatchets. I mean, you can see the, the chop marks in the hatchets. Um, and in between the beams, there's uh, sheetrock, which is painted um, almost a light mustard color. Um, the room is about mm, 10 feet by 10 feet square, maybe 11 feet by 11 feet square. Behind me in the background, you can see a door with three panels in it. Um, and you can also see part of a painting. I'm moving out of the way. So those of you who are able to see it all, um, there's a painting that looks like there are clouds and some green. Mm -hmm. um, it was painted by my dad's art teacher, who was, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, a disciple of the Ashcan School of Art. Um, and it's a skyline view of Manhattan looking down through the clouds as if you were a bird. Um, and there are little seagulls drawn, drawn on it. So it's, a, it's, it's somewhat abstract, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, my dad was a, worked for the post office loading bags of mail on trucks, but he was a painter in his spare time. Um, and then there are a couple of little tables in the background, side tables with small lamps and what you can't see in the picture because I'm sitting in front of it is there is a bed. This is the guest bedroom um, of our little house. And I am on screen. I'm wearing a black t-shirt. I am, I'm told a youthful 62. I have uh, short brown hair and green eyes and um, a somewhat angular face. I'm told you're devilishly handsome. So <laughs> I felt like I should share that with the non-visual um, listeners. <laughs> that's very, that's very, very kind of you. Um, very kind of you. So, you know, we, we spoke a little bit before the presentation, and um, I think we really gave a pretty good representation. Um, but I want to ask you, and I know that you, you make it a point not to, to be a, a full-on commentator, but you of, of, any, of any of the guests we've ever had on Pride Connection or, or anyone I think I've ever spoken to, to be quite honest, have the right to, to answer this question. Sure. Um, it, it's a dichotomy question. What do you, you know, and again, your own personal opinion, what has the HIV AIDS epidemic done to and for our community? And then I'll answer, open it up for some questions. So uh, be ready. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, with, with hindsight, we can see that the AIDS crisis was a huge turning point in the fight for LGBTQ equal rights. 
the biggest um, hindrance to making progress in the movement prior to AIDS was the issue of visibility. You know, if you don't know someone who's gay or someone who's LGBTQ, you can imagine all kinds of things about them. Um, but to be out in those days was uh, often very risky because you could lose your job, you could be rejected by your family. So um, while there were many more people out during the 1970s than the 60s, um, there still were a lot of people who were closeted. And I remember interviewing one woman uh, who'd worked during the AIDS crisis on, on uh, organizing. And she said, when I was young, I used to wish that all gay people would turn purple so that people could see that we were their brothers and sisters and their colleagues and stars and all kinds of people. And she said, well, AIDS sort of did that. Um, it forced hundreds of thousands of people out of the closet. And also people got to see that we came together as a community to care for one another so that we were seen as very human. And then also all kinds of issues that uh, wouldn't have come up otherwise in such a public way uh, were made visible by the AIDS crisis. So people lost their apartments because their partner died and they weren't on the lease. Um, there are families that swooped in after a partner died and, and took all of their belongings without the surviving partner having any say or took the body and, and held a funeral. And wouldn't allow them at the funeral. Yeah, Ex exactly. So, so those were, you know, it made very clear that because we didn't have legal protections uh, and couldn't protect one another in legal marriage, that uh, we were very much exposed. Also, lots of people, the people who survived the AIDS epidemic, um, particularly women who uh, uh, had a very prominent role during the AIDS crisis in both caring for people and organizing, um, people got enormous experience in fundraising and organizing, and they brought all of that experience with them to the movement as the AIDS crisis receded, at least receded in the LGBTQ, civil, uh, LGBTQ community, among gay men in particular. Um, so I think there's so many lessons to be learned. And also we look at the COVID crisis now, the, the COVID, COVID pandemic. So much of how the current pandemic has been dealt with um, is informed, was informed by the experiences during the AIDS crisis. Uh, just one example: bringing a, a vaccine and bringing treatment to the to the uh, public uh, to the market to market um, so quickly um, couldn't have happened without AIDS research. Absolutely, couldn't, couldn't have happened without it. No, um, and those of us who lived through the AIDS crisis, I think, approached this pandemic differently from people who had never lived through such a thing before. I mean, my partner and I were hyper hyper vigilant. We took it very seriously. We didn't die during the last pandemic, and we weren't going to die during this one if we could help it. Um, so and it's also, I think it's a bit of PTSD for those of us who survived the last one, um, to yeah. go through, through this. Um, but the experience helped us, uh, take this one very seriously in a way that many other people did not. I actually have one more question before we open it up to the audience. Sure. There are those lucky few who survived from close to, or if not the beginning of, of the epidemic. Have you ever had any, um, conversations with someone that, was around from the early days and survived. And what, what, what did you take away, if anything, from those conversations? You mean people who were infected with HIV who, who survived? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, like you said, it was a death sentence. You, you know, in, in the early 80s, you were going to die. But there were a few people who didn't, who yeah, mercifully yeah. made it through. Yeah, um, I, I have. Absolutely. In fact, I remember a conversation I had with a friend who was HIV positive, this was in, in 1989, and it was a conversation I regret um, because 
I had just found out my status and I was negative and he had found out his status and he was positive. We were the same age, liked each other very much. And I just moved to San Francisco. He lived in San Francisco and um, it would have been natural for us to become friends. And I said, I wasn't sure I could be friends with somebody who was going to die, but I didn't think I could handle it. And I was being honest in a way that I think I shouldn't have been because I think it was very hurtful. We became friends nonetheless. And he, but he survived. He's one of the, um, the people from the early days who did. And he runs an organization now for people who are long-term survivors because long-term survivors have all kinds of issues, health issues, psychological yeah. issues. Um, but I have one friend who never developed symptoms. He is one of those uh, rare individuals who has a genetic anomaly uh, that allowed him to be infected but never develop the disease. Um, there's a group of people whose ancestors survived the Black Plague in Europe in, I think, the 1300s um, who have a genetic anomaly um, or genetic mutation that protected them from getting sick, even if they were infected with HIV. Um, and that's just, yeah, it's just miraculous. Um, I have one friend who was so badly damaged by HIV um, he's still alive and he's, he's living on his own, but he had all kinds of, of terrible things happen, including a stroke, uh, which left him uh, physically and mentally impaired. Um, so yeah, I've talked to people, I mean, my, my friend, the friend in California never went back to school to complete his degree because he didn't expect to live and he lived and he lived and he, and he just didn't expect to. So he never planned for, for a long life. And I think it left him at sea. Uh, not knowing what to do with his life um, because he didn't he didn't expect to live. I mean, Greg Luganis is one of the <clears throat> prime examples. Um, yeah. I wrote his autobiography. Greg expe expected to die, and when I was working with him on his book, we expected him to die at any moment because he had no uh, virtually no T cells left. Um, but he lived long enough to uh, benefit from the cocktail that came into being in the mid nineteen nineties, and he's still here and alive and well. Does he have much survivor's guilt? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I ever asked him. Um, I have survivor's guilt. Um, I, I know a number of my friends who have survivor's guilt uh, because we watched so many of those uh, of, of our friends um, and colleagues and neighbors die. Um, and I remember uh, I signed the contract for making history for the original book before I had been tested. And made a deal with God, and I don't even believe in God, but I made a deal, just let me live long enough to finish this book. Um, because it was so important to me to get it done. And I got lucky. Um, and I can tell you, I got, I can tell you it's luck because I had enough exposure to HIV that, that um, I, I, it's a miracle that I was not infected and that I'm here. Um, so um, I think about so many of my friends, especially since I've been working on this season of the podcast about, about my experience during the AIDS crisis. And I think of all my young friends who died. Um, and here I am. I think especially during the pandemic that this, you know, this work is so important, you know, A, for our community, of course, but for the community, you know, for our, for our country, our world at large. We are going to open up for some questions. Phone number uh, beginning with area code 215 ending in 640. You may speak. Hi, my name is Betty Passanante. I live in Philadelphia, and I, first of all, I want to say that BPI has just about the best programming at, at, at this whole extravaganza. I, I Thank mean, you. My husband and I are so, it's so varied and so interesting and so different and so daring. 
and so unboring. It's amazing. My, Thank my you. question is, and I don't exactly expect an answer for it, and, and I know I'm not talking to medical people, but how come after all this time and all this research, there's no vaccine for HIV? Uh, that's a great question, and I can tell you, as someone said to me recently, if a straight men could give, if one straight man could give another straight man HIV, they would have been a cure by now. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, there. It, it, there it, you know, first of all, it's a very complex virus, but... I was going to uh, say, I mean, they got the COVID vaccine quickly, you know. So yeah, and now, yeah, and now because of the COVID uh, vaccine and the research done around that, there's a strong chance, from what I've read, that there will be a, an HIV vaccine before long. Well, eventually. Um, but I think a lot of it had to do with, with the people who were infected and died, um, principally gay men, uh, IV drug users, um, uh, and now uh, mostly black and, black and brown people who are uh, 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 poor black and brown people. So, you know, we live in a society where, where um, there's much more concern for those with power than those without. So I had a I, girlfriend... I, I had a girlfriend who thought that maybe one of the reasons is because since they've managed to get some treatments to at least control, you know, manage it better, the, the push isn't there for the vaccine. Well, I think I, it's more, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think it's more that, it, you know, there's much more money in maintaining the disease than there would be in curing the disease. Yeah. Would you uh, agree, Eric? Well, I, I, I hate to be that cynical, but I am that cynical. Um, so I think there, I think that's a, that's a, I think that's a factor, whether people would be willing to acknowledge it or even, uh, even acknowledge it. I, I'm not sure they would, but I think so much of it has to do with who was infected. If you look at the early coverage of AIDS, it was shocking. Um, if you listen to the, uh, the first episode or it was the second episode, I can't remember of, of my podcast. The second of me. Yeah. Second. It's the second. Yeah. The clip, the clip with the, um, uh, the White House uh, uh, press uh -huh. secretary. Yeah. yeah. So this was a, a, a press conference in 1980. Help me, Anthony. Was it 1986? I can't remember now. I, I thought it was five. Oh, um, so it was a, 1985 with, um, with uh, President uh, Reagan's press secretary. And it's the first time a, press, uh, a person from the press asks uh, the press secretary about AIDS. And it's this shocking interchange of sort of nervous laughter and joking. It's, uh, and this is 85, and it's the first time the press is asking whether or not the president is aware of AIDS, and there's laughter. It's just, it was so infuriating to hear this clip. I'd never heard it before. Um, so given what the I'd attitudes were like either. at that time, yep. yeah, yeah. What did you think, Anthony, when you heard it? I, my, I heard a churn in my stomach, like a horrific, yeah. you know, like you said, we can't look at, at throughout the lens so many people that I knew or that, you know, I knew people who knew so many people, you know, the, the churn in my stomach was how, 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 how dare that? How could that, you know? Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for the compliments and the question. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to move on. We want to try to get as many people in as we can. Who's next. And if you want to unmute the next person so that we can go faster, that would be great. Okay. M Stores is you may Hello, speak. Hello, I'm I'm Mary. Uh, I live in Indiana, and I was thinking about um, one of the things that influenced me. I'm I'm a straight person, but I stand in as an ally for my friends in the GLBTQ community. But one of the things that influenced me was the movie Philadelphia, um, because of um, 
the you know the couple and the, and the one guy I can't remember his name because it was so long ago that I watched it, but had gotten AIDS and you know he he was had to die by himself. Yeah, it and, was Tom, Tom Hanks was one of the stars. Yeah, yeah, and and it made me sort of question, you know, all my upbringing, my religious upbringing, you uh, know, about um, and so it ultimately would put me on the path to where I am today. But I was wondering, are there um other um, were, were people who are um, in the GLBTQ community even consulted when that movie was made? Um, I'm sure because it was it was it was accurate. What wasn't accurate about the film was that the, the two men rarely have any physical contact, and it's like they're almost two right. buddies. Um, uh, there was another film called Longtime Companion, which which also was uh, um, it was a terrific film. So these were this is when when films finally were. Uh, beginning to portray gay people who um, who were living through the AIDS crisis. Um, and I'm keeping my answer short because I know there are other people who wanted to ask questions. I do believe that there, that there was some, you know, that there was some consultation. It was a really, really well done movie. Yeah. Besides the fact that, you know, him and Antonio Banderas hardly ever touched. Right. All right, next. Sarita Kimball, you may speak. I wanted to really acknowledge that uh, I went to school for a gentleman named Bill Reddy. And Bill, uh, later in the years, disclosed to me that he was gay. Uh, as, as people say, my best friend, well, Bill and I were best friends. He went on to be a producer at ABC, and he produced the uh, program Visions. Not too, not too many years ago, Visions had an anniversary where they were celebrating the uh, retirement of Vernon Odom. And so they, they did a a recount of various people who had worked at ABC uh, during Vernon's time. And I, I was reduced to tears because they didn't even mention Bill Reddy. And so I so appreciate the work that you're doing because of the documentation you're doing, because Bill Reddy mattered to me and many others. Mm. And uh, Bill left uh, that station because he knew he couldn't advance. And uh, he went on to Lincoln, Nebraska, where he went to law school and became a disability attorney, which I was so proud of. He specialized in uh, special ed. That was his, his practice. Yeah. Uh, Bill grew up in a time where, uh, with the protocols of treatment that they had, he was allergic to sulfur. So when he became positive that prescribed treatment, he was allergic to it. So he made it known to all of us that he was going to take his life, which he, in fact, did. Wow. But, uh, uh, yeah, he, he said, and he went blind. If I ever have enough money, I'd like uh, to establish uh, something in his name because he yeah. was a hell of a man and uh, taught me so much. Because uh, when he disclosed to me, he said, uh, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? Never love? And it, yeah. you know how someone says something to you and it just stops you in your tracks? You're like, yeah. you think about it. And you're like. Yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> that's my comment. But thank you so much. And, 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 thank you Anthony, so much for sharing. Yes, ma'am. Anthony, if he yes. were still alive, you would be best friends with him because your personality <laughs> is so much like him. <laughs> I take that as the ultimate compliment. Thank and you, sir. Compliment. You know, we love you. <laughs> and that is a compliment. Thank you very much. Sure. And just as a follow-up to Sarita, um, uh, uh, one of the... Uh, one of the um, 
One of the illnesses that people got uh, in the early days of AIDS that couldn't be treated or well treated was cytomegalovirus, which led people led to blindness. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, and and Sarita also mentioned sulfur drugs and pneumocystis pneumonia, which was a, a real killer in those days. Um, uh, not so different from the, the lung issues people have around COVID. Um, it was treated with sulfur drugs initially. So uh, if you couldn't be treated with sulfur drugs, there was nothing, nothing they could do to save you. At least as far as I remember, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm getting that wrong. But I see there's another question from David Smith. That's correct. David, you may speak. Uh, hello, uh, great presentation. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't, I didn't find in until about, about five minutes late, but uh, it was uh, very personal to me having lived through that time. Um, I, I don't think of it much anymore, but brought back a lot of memories and uh, made me think of a lot of friends and that I don't have anymore. And uh, I remember back in that time, it you just you just took it day by day. You knew it was there. You were always told to be careful, uh, but it it wasn't terrifying. But looking back at it today. Like gosh, that was that was pretty scary, but uh, uh, it, it you know at that time you just you uh, it was just the way I grew up that way, so um, it was something I was just used to being around and uh, just being as safe as possible. But uh, so I just want to thank you yeah. and. Uh, that's a great presentation. Thank you, David. And for those Thank who are you. listening, um, the current season of the podcast, um, where you can find what you can find at makinggayhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts, um, is an exploration, my personal exploration of the history of the AIDS crisis from 1981 to 1988. Um, just really my story and also the stories of people whose lives um, I intersected with during that time. And I've gone back to some, find some of the people I met during those years, including the widow of one of the people I counseled when I was a volunteer at Gay Men's Health Crisis, um, who was a drug addict, a straight drug addict. And I tracked down his widower um, and interviewed her. I found the woman who gave me and my then partner our test results in 1988 when we took our first HIV test and interviewed wow. her. And actually just interviewed my sister um, a couple of hours ago um, about how I came to talk to her about the fact I was gay and whether she worried about my health because of, uh, because of AIDS. Um, so it's very much uh, a close in look at the AIDS crisis through my experience because it's such a big story. Um, and we'll have a total of six episodes. It's makinggayhistory.org, correct? Um, that's our, that's our, our organization website, but the podcast website is makinggayhistory.com. Anthony, you, did you give the CEU codes? You know what, I didn't, can you give them? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I didn't get a panelist invite, so I didn't have them. The beginning code was 42820, and the ending code was 89638. And I'll do that again. The first one is 42820, and the ending one is 89638. Eric, 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 as always, thank you so much. This was an amazing uh, presentation. 
Delighted to be invited and very glad to be um, uh, a part of the, the conference. Um, I, I wish you a happy 21st anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you.